We thank the Lord that he is a refuge for the righteous, that God avenges the righteous, that God judges the wicked. We can take comfort in that this morning, saints, that the Lord does avenge us. He takes vengeance on his enemies and the enemies of his people, and we should take courage in that. Amen. I was thinking about this song, It Is Well, that third uh, verse about our sins, they are nailed to the cross, and that is so, such a uh, glorious and comforting truth, and that we bear them no more. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Like the song said, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul, that our sins were nailed to the cross, and that we don't bear them anymore. And we thank the Lord for that gospel truth. Let us uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you this morning. Just thinking about the songs that we've sung and scriptures that have been read so far, we thank you for blessing us with your word, and we thank you for blessing us with uh, scripturally sound uh, music, songs, lyrics that speak to the truth of the gospel about what you have done for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ and what Christ has done for us and and. Uh, nailing our sins to the cross and us not bearing them anymore and beholding you as our God uh, who created the heavens and earth. Father, I just want to express gratitude to you and, and thanksgiving to you. Lord, your word tells us to give thanks to you. For Lord, your mercy endures forever. Father, we just thank you. We just have gratitude in our heart towards you, towards what you have done and for what you have done. As I was reading Psalm 9 uh, this morning and meditating on it, the, the psalmist said, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. And I will sing to your name, sing praises to your name, O Most High. And Father, you are so worthy of praise this morning as the psalmist proclaimed because you have maintained the righteous. You sit on your throne in judgment. You rebuke the nations, the wicked. You destroy the wicked. You, you blot out their name forever. And Lord, you shall endure forever. You prepared your throne for judgment. You shall judge the world in righteousness. You shall administer judgment and Father, for all these reasons, we are to sing praises to you. We are to declare your deeds. Father, we thank you this morning for being righteous, for being faithful, for being the only true God, as the catechism taught us this morning. You are the, the only true God. All other small g gods are false gods. They're, they're idols. Father, you alone are worthy of the praise, honor, and glory. Lord, you alone are worthy of worship, and may we as a church and may we as individuals that make up your church seek to worship you, seek to worship you alone as the one true God. Father, I pray this morning for uh, Mary and uh, Maddox. They're both under the weather, as we say colloquially. Uh, they're, they're not feeling well, so Lord, we pray that you be with them this morning. 
that you may visit them by your spirit and encourage them in the spirit. Uh, Melissa, as she takes care of her boys and, and Mary, she sits home with her husband here at church, Lord, that you be with her also. Lord, I pray that you you heal them and bring them back to uh, full health. Lord, we pray for any other church members in here who may uh, be dealing with afflictions in our bodies, afflictions in our minds. Um, those of us in here who may be struggling with certain sins, Father, that you, you help us. We're weak. We're needy. Lord, we're helpless without the Spirit's power enabling us and working in us. So, Father, those of us in here who are struggling with certain uh, besetting sins, who are struggling with uh, health issues or health problems, Lord, that you visit us, that, that you comfort us, that you encourage us in the spirit and encourage us by means of the spirit and by means of your word. Lord, the, the scriptures provide such great comfort for us as believers because it is your very word and your very word is true. Every single uh, word, every single accent, every s single jot and tittle in your word, Lord, is true. So encourage us through the scriptures, through prayer, through fellowshipping with the saints. Father, lift us up who are downtrodden. Those of us who are um, struggling at work with the demands of our jobs. Father, that you help us persevere us in our work. Persevere us in our job duties. Persevere us in in working uh, alongside those who don't uh, believe you, those who are not believers in you, those who do not believe on your name. Well, many of us work alongside unbelievers. They may be nice people, but they're still in their sins. And some of them are not nice people, and they are yet still in their sins. So, Father, give us strength uh, to work well alongside, not forming partnerships with them because we're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but for Lord to, to work alongside them to achieve the goals that we have to achieve on our, on our jobs and our place of employment. May we be a gospel light to those who are unbelievers. May you give us gospel boldness in declaring your truth uh, to those who have our ear, for our children in school, the environments that uh, many of them are in, Lord, that you encourage them in your spirit, that you persevere them in their schoolwork and dealing with their peers and dealing with their teachers who may not uh, know you, who may not worship you. But, Lord, that you may encourage them in the spirit, that you um, help them to focus on what they are in school for, to be a good gospel witness, to be a gospel witness in, in their schoolwork and how they perform in the classroom and how they treat their teachers and administrators and how they treat their peers. Lord, there are many ways as we go through our day that we can show gospel love and gospel perseverance. And I pray, Father, that you do that for us with the help of your spirit. Father, I pray for our nation, our president, our vice president, their cabinet, our senators, 
our uh, representatives in Congress. Lord, that you may call them to repentance, to turn away from their sinful lives and their sinful um, legislative ideas, proposed legislations. Lord, they can't propose right legislation until their hearts are changed. So, so Father, we pray for salvation. We pray for revival in Washington. We pray for revival in Montgomery. We pray, Lord, for your spirit to, to, to bring revival that is God wrought, that is God brought, that is God ordained to our nation that we may turn back to you in worship, turn back to proclaiming biblical principles, biblical morality. We pray, Lord, that we turn back to you as a nation, our leaders in Washington and in Montgomery and in our uh, local uh, magistrates. Lord, they all turn to you in true worship, worshiping the one true God who is blessed. And Father, we pray for our sister churches again, as we always do. Thankful for the faithful brethren who are leading uh, our churches, our gospel partners, uh, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer, uh, ABC, and uh, Christian Fellowship, and also uh, Iron City and Mountain View Church and First Baptist Lionville. Lord, bless us as men uh, in the living church also that we continue to be faithful shepherds, persevere us, Lord, in pastoral ministry, which can be very difficult at times and discouraging at times and be very trying at times. But, Lord, we thank you for persevering us all in ministry, causing us to be faithful, causing us to be faithful shepherds to your flock, causing us to, to faithfully proclaim gospel truth in the midst of a lot of churches that are uh, preaching false gospel and, and presenting a false Christ and a false hope. Father, continue to persevere us in gospel ministry. Help us as men, help us as fathers, help us as husbands to be the man of God that you have called us to be, the men of God rather that you have called us to be. And Father, now we come now to the ministry of your word as we Look at the servants, partners in Nehemiah, the third chapter. This is a very encouraging chapter showing us as a church how we are to uh, work together, how we are all co-laborers with Christ, that we are to work together, work with one another, partner with one another in doing the work that you have called us to do. Father, send your spirit to help me to preach this text to your glory in a way that is pleasing to you and send your spirit Lord to illuminate this passage this morning to reveal your truth to us to encourage us by your word and to bring those who are sinners to a saving faith in Christ's name amen I mean, let us turn to Nehemiah the third chapter And this morning's topic is the servants, partners. Again, we're looking at Nehemiah. He is the type of Christ as servant of the Lord's people. And we see this 
in Nehemiah. We'll continue our series in this book in the third chapter. And this picks up where uh, the wall is beginning to be rebuilt. In fact, chapters three through seven cover the rebuilding of the wall and the opposition to that rebuilding that um, we will uh, read in subsequent uh, passages, subsequent chapters. I'm not going to read it in total. Just going to kind of glance over it with some observations and then uh, go into our message. Uh, it begins, remember, at the end of chapter 2, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we as servants will arise and build. And so we see that happening. So now the rebuilding of the wall, uh, the narrative begins uh, for this. The wall is built and there's going to be, as I said, difficulties in rebuilding the wall. So we have Eliashib, who is the high priest. He rose up with his brothers and the priests and they built the sheep gate and they consecrated and set his doors. And then it goes on in verse 3, the son of Hassanah, they built the fish gate and all these are the names of the different gates uh, around the city. And then verse 6, you have uh, Joida, the son of Paseah. They repaired the gate of Yeshanah. Okay, and they all built next to each other. And then you have verse 13, the inhabitants of Zenor, they built the valley gate. And then Makija, they built the Dung Gate, and Shalom, the ruler of the district of Mizpah, they repaired the Fountain Gate, and then the Horse Gate, verse 28, uh, the priests had repaired each one to his own house. So that's basically an overview of what took place. There was a, a listing of names of, of men, uh, servants who helped to build uh, the gates around the city. So just an opening thought uh, this morning. Uh, saying and doing are two different things. Uh, many are apt to say, let us rise up and build. But some still sit and do nothing. It's like the parable of the two sons in uh, Matthew uh, 21 and 30. Where one said, I go, sir, but he went not. But the undertakers here, the ones that we read in the chapter, they uh, were not like that. As soon as they had resolved to build the wall, as we read in the second chapter, as soon as they had resolved to do it, to build the wall around Jerusalem, they didn't waste any time. But they said about it. And that's what we see chronicled here in this chapter. There's a famous theologian that said, let it never be said that we left that good work to be done tomorrow, which we might as well have done today. That is a very good quote. Many of us are master procrastinators, right? I procrastinate sometimes on things. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be the first to confess that sin. Uh, many of us, we do procrastinate. We, we put work off. 
uh, we put off what uh, we put off for tomorrow what could be done today. And sometimes we could do that with the Lord's work also. So again, chapter three at a glance, uh, we see an account of two things that are taking place. Uh, the first thing we see are the names of the builders. And these are recorded uh, to their honor. And everything that they did uh, fit with what they were supposed to do. What they did was fit uh, to be largely uh, registered. So we see the names of the different people. This is like a, a roll call, an honor roll of those who helped, excuse me, helped to build uh, the wall. Now there's a certain order that the building uh, took place. They took it before them and they ended where they began and they uh, built the wall counterclockwise. And if you look at the chapter here, it is broken up. They, they built the fish gate first in verses 1 and 2. And then the old gate, verses 3 through 5. And then the valley gate in verses 6 through 12. And then the dung gate, which was verses 13 and 14. And then the fountain gate at verse 15. And then the water gate, uh, verses 16 through 26. And then the horse gate to the sheep gate again where they had began in verses 27 through 32. And so they had brought their work around uh, the city. And they did it in a counterclockwise fashion. And then you have the priests uh, written in verses 1 and 21, including the high priest Eliashib. Then you have the Levites in verse 17. <coughs> the temple service in verse 26. The perfumers, they were basically druggists uh, in verse 8. The district leaders, you see that in verses 9 and 12 and 15 through 17. Then you have the goldsmiths, who are the jewelers, basically, in verses 8, 13, and 32. You have the merchants, which are basically storekeepers, grocers, and tailors, because remember, this was a city. They are listed in verse 31. And then you have the women in verse 12. And even out-of-towners participated in the rebuilding of the wall. So at this time in Israel's history, the priests were the spiritual leaders of the Jews and uh, because they had no kings and judges uh, at this time. And so they were set as examples in leading the way. So all these different groups of people were participating in the wall. So basically, as we say in the Navy, it was an all-hands-on-deck undertaking. Everyone played a part. Everyone participated and fulfilled their role, even down to the women. And the work began near the temple and went in counterclockwise, as I said, and it ended at the temple also. And the rebuilders of the wall, they worked together, and they didn't just work all in the same place. They worked in groups. And this list of names shows us uh, God's story in using uh, these people whom he has called who played their part in the continuity of his people because remember they came back from exile 
to resume worship of God in the holy city of Jerusalem. The temple had already been rebuilt, uh, and we saw that in the book of Ezra. And so now the city has to be fortified. The wall has to be put around it. So this is God sovereignly continuing his work, continuing his work of the redemption of his people, the continuity of this nation, and thus the continuity of the story of redemption in all of Scripture. So this list of names reveals the ideas, the principles, and the priorities which characterize uh, their work. And it should characterize our work for the Lord as well as we would see. So this brings us down to our big idea. It's about the good work of the Lord, and it is characterized by the builder's priority, unity, unselfishness, disappointment, commitment, and reward. All of these things are going to happen with the rebuilding of the wall. So we're going to look at our principles this morning. The first principle is that the good work of the Lord is characterized by the builder's priority. The first thing to note, if you look at this chapter, is the name Eliashib, the high priest. And there's this is no mere coincidence that the, the high priest um, began with him as well as the priest and that they were to build the sheep gate and consecrate it. This is, this is not by happenstance or by chance. This shows that the priority of doing any work of God, especially in the church, should rest first with the leaders of the church. And here the high priest and his colleagues set the example for the rest of the builders. They began building first. They showed what we call servant leadership. They did not wait to be served, but they did what? They served. And we see that in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who himself said, the Son of Man did not come but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We see that, that priesthood being, of course, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And that is what we see here with these priests. They began the work. They started the work. They prioritized the work. And what we try to do here, what I try to do, what I try to endeavor to do is to work alongside God's people in fulfilling the mission and goals of this church and whatever work that we have to do, not just sit back and, and kick my heels up and, and uh, watch everyone else do the work. The writer in Hebrews 13 and 7 reminds us to remember those who have ruled over us, who have spoken the word of God to us, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. So these priests want to be as good as their message. They are declaring God's word to his people. That is one of their, their jobs and their offices. So guess what? They had to now lead by example. And this in turn would encourage the enthusiasm of everyone else. If they see the priests working and they see those who are laboring and preaching uh, God's law to them, if the people see them working, then that's going to encourage them to do it also. And that is what we see here in this example, the builder's priority. And one other thing to note is that they are working on the 
sheep gate. The sheep gate provided easy access to the temple. So if you look at a map of uh, the ancient city of Jerusalem, I have one in my, in my, in my Bible up here, uh, but the sheep gate was nearest the temple because remember the temple is where all the sacrifices were offered. So the sheep gate had to be close enough uh, to the temple so that they could bring the temple sacrifices in to be, uh, you know, to worship uh, God. That's where the animals entered to be sacrificed. And this is symbolic. It basically says put God first, put worship of God first. And it also echoes the words of Christ in Matthew 6 and 33 where Jesus said, uh, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. So that sheep gate was built near uh, the temple. Which leads to our next principle, the good work of the Lord is characterized by unity, the builder's unity. Now, these priests, again, could not do this work on their own because, number one, it wasn't enough for them to do so. They could not do this work on their own. They needed help. The success of the rebuilding depended upon teamwork. That's why when you read this passage, you may see next to him, next to him, you know, next to them. If you, did you notice that when you read the passage? You see next to him, next to them you know, so forth and so on, that, that indicates teamwork, that they were working together side by side. We see that all the way in verses 3 through 31. So people from a wide variety of different backgrounds, different traits, and different locations were going to work together on this wall, and they all worked next to each other. Those with building experience would construct the walls, because every single person didn't have building experience. All of them were not uh, smiths or carpenters. The non-skilled workers, they cleared away the rubble. You know, they could put their hands uh, to do that, to clear away the rubble while the skilled workers did uh, the building. So the non-skilled workers, as some theologians said, they uh, cleaned away extensive rubble. They cleaned and reshaped the old stones. And they moved heavy materials from one place to the other. So everyone had something to do. There's a saying that we have at work that teamwork makes the dream work. And it does when you work together, when God's people works together. That matters. And this is not some type of artificial diversity. But it is God wrought. That means God has wrought this in their hearts to work together to rebuild this wall. In the 18th century, uh, Charles Wesley, uh, yet the Wesley brothers, they were the founder of the uh, Methodist Church. Um, he has some great and matchless hymns. And it says here, many of the people in early Methodist society could barely read so the hymns were sung more for their educational value than their inspiring, aspiring melodies. The Wesley brothers knew that the young converts were never developing spiritual maturity and influence their local communities if they were harassed by disunity. 
So they taught them the invaluable virtue of one another, encouraging them to sing this hymn, All Praise to Our Redeeming God. And this is the words to this hymn written by uh, Charles Wesley. It says, All praise to our redeeming Lord, who joins us by his grace, and bids us each to each restored together seek his face he bids us build each other up and gathered into one to our high callings glorious hope we hand in hand go on and if our fellowship below in jesus be so sweet what greater blessing shall we know when round his throne we meet that was a hymn by Charles Wesley encouraging Christians back in the 18th century in the 1700s uh, to foster Christian unity. And what this shows us is that none of us were meant to live to ourselves. When God made Adam, he created animal. I'm sorry, he created Adam rather, and he created animals, and he told Adam to name all the animals remember that in the genesis account he named Ad adam was in charge of naming all the animals he had all this around him he had all these animals he had all this nature around him but what did god say to adam it is not what good that man be what alone although he had all these animals around him in the garden he had all these animals he had all the trees around the garden, all the food, but Adam was still alone. So God told him, it is not good that man should be alone. And so what did God do? He made him a suitable companion, or the old translations say, a helpmeet, who was going to be his wife. And that shows us in creation that man is not meant to, to be alone, to do things for ourselves, to live to ourselves, to go out somewhere in the woods and be a hermit. That is not what God created us for. God created us for relationship. He created us for companionship. In the context of marriage, of course, biblical marriage. Uh, but God created us for one another. That we all need to partner with one another. And division is one of the most tragic uh, things that happens in the life of a local church. And it's one of the worst things that can happen in the life of a church altogether. You know, that's why we have a, a gospel partnerships with other churches, other churches that are uh, preaching the true gospel and the true Christ. We, we can't have partnerships with churches that teach false doctrine because false doctrine divides. False doctrine tears apart. False doctrine creates a false sense of unity because you're gathering around a false gospel and you're worshiping a false Christ. And that does not bring unity. Preaching the false Christ does not unify. Because Christ himself is the one who brings all of us in him together. But if you're preaching the false Christ and not the true Christ, you have no true unity. We are united in God through Christ. And that's why we partner with other churches that do the same thing and that preach the same thing. 
So we see here in this passage these, these people working together, and that shows us that as believers, the church is to be a sign of unity in this world. The church is to be a sign of people working together to advance the cause of the gospel in our world. That is why in Paul's letters in particular, you see hundreds of one another commands. I remember doing a sermon series on the one another church probably back in 2012 or 2013. I may revisit that. But we looked at the various one another uh, commands in Paul's letters. There are hundreds of them. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul refers to the church as a body. And that all the parts of the body jointly fit together. That one part of the body can't say to the other, I have no need of you. Because the church is a body, and that is what this rebuilding project we see in Nehemiah, this is what it exemplifies. It exemplifies unity. It exemplifies the church working together, the builders' unity as we're looking at this principle. And also to note is that disunity can come from the lack of spiritual or relational one another relationships. We can easily forget that we are a body of believers and go into isolation. You know, think uh, Christ, when he prayed in John 17, he prayed that we as Christians be one as he and the Father are one. That's in John 17, verses 20 through 21. And when Christ was preaching unity, he wasn't saying unity for unity's sake. He was talking about unity around him and who he is. Unity around the true Christ. As Paul said in Ephesians 4, there's one God, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above you all and in you all and through you all. That is the unity that Christ is talking about, being united around the true God. Because we have a lot of false unity going on in the church today. Diversity for the sake of diversity. And that is not the unity that God calls us to. Amen. Our next principle says the good work of the Lord is characterized by the builder's unselfishness. Unselfishness. Okay. <laughs> the work of God cannot be accomplished with selfish people. It just cannot. It would not be accomplished. It would not be accomplished with selfish people. When we look at this text, we see that people came from different places from up to 15 to 20 miles away to help with the rebuilding of this temple. Volunteers came from Jericho, the city of Jericho. They came from around Jericho. They came from Tekoa. They came from Gibeon. Okay, when you and what this is teaching us is as we as we read the passage, we 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 can see those type of observations there. You see Gibeon and Mitzpah, you see that in verses 7. And you see Mitzpah in verse 7, verse 15, and verse 19. Remember, this is in Jerusalem that this is taking place. So all these cities that you see named are from around Jerusalem. 
Just think of building a temple in Anniston and you got Oxford and you got Mumford and you got Talladega and you got uh, Jacksonville and you got Pleasant Valley and Piedmont and you know all these places around 15, 20 miles away. You know, down to maybe Lincoln or over towards Heflin and you know, down towards Lionville. You got all these people coming to this city to help rebuild. Just kind of have that picture in mind and that's what we see here. People came as far away as Zenoa in verse 13. Beth Hackerum in verse 14. Beth Zer, verse 16. And Keela in verse 17 and 18. So all these people came. They came to do the work that could benefit others far more than themselves because these people had no interest. They had no interest. It did not benefit them because they had their own things to attend to in their own cities. But they were selfless enough to come and help these people of God rebuild this wall. That is the height of unselfishness. These people had their own towns. They had their own matters in their own cities. But they came to help these people rebuild the temple. I'm sorry, not the temple, but the wall. And Paul underscores this. I've read this before in uh, Philippians 2. We talked about that, about uh, not doing things for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Paul talks about this again in uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8, and how unity is achieved through humility and being selfless. You know, the world calls us to worship ourselves. To love yourself. God tells us to love him and serve others. That's what he calls us to do. Having the same love toward one another, as Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. That's Philippians 2 and 3. And that's what we see here in this passage with these people coming uh, from afar. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not look out rather not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Matthew Henry said, Christians who are unselfish are content to serve solely because they want to be a blessing to others. That's what it takes to be selfless. Dedicated prayer partners spend hours of their time earnestly praying for countries they would never visit. You know, we pray for the persecuted church. We will never visit those countries. We will never perhaps see those people, but we still pray for them. We don't just concern ourselves with uh, what we call first world problems, but we, we consider the plight of other Christians around the world. People intercede for missionaries that they may have never met. Other unselfish Christians work in God's church and in, in total obscurity, you, you, know, you don't even know what they're doing 
They're doing things behind the scenes that no one else sees because we live in this look at me culture. Look at what I'm doing. Let me let me post what I'm doing. Let me post who I'm donating to. Let me let me post and boast about how I'm serving. Instead of just doing the work. We don't do it to receive the applause of man. We do it to please God and we do it to serve others. That is how Christian work is supposed to be characterized in an unselfish way. We don't do it to please ourselves. We don't do it to make ourselves look good. We don't do it to increase our social standing with people. You know, our church has done a lot for people through the years. We've never published any of it. We never asked the Anderson Star to come do a uh, feature on us when we were serving uh, the Paris home for seven years. We just did it. We just did it quietly, didn't we? never said anything about going to the nursing home all those years that we were able to do it until uh, 2020 uh, came along. We just did it just quietly, just went every second Sunday and just served those people when the nursing home was was behind us when we did the, the Thanksgiving thing. Uh, many of y'all weren't here at that time back at the city meeting us in for three years in a row with the other churches. We didn't we didn't go out and put it on Facebook and tell everybody what we were doing. We just we just did the work. We just served people. I'm not trying to toot horns and different things like that. Like uh, I'm not saying people have those motives, but the, the point is we don't do it to get that kind of attention. We do it because we want to love and serve other people and serve the Lord's people. And that is how all of our work should be characterized. It should be selfless. But we live in such a self-saturated culture that everyone has to let people know what they're doing to, to uh, boost their, especially unbelievers. You know, around Thanksgiving time, you, you, you see that all the time about people who uh, reject God in, in their music and in their, in, in, in their lifestyles. And, you know, they've given away a thousand turkeys somewhere or, you know, bought kids bicycles and gifts for Christmas. And that's all well and good, but they're doing it. Why? To assuage their guilty conscience and, and to show that, uh, you know, I am a good person, that I can do some good things sometimes. But they're doing it out of selfish ambition and vainglory. They're doing it to be seen and applauded by man. Yeah, they say all this stuff in their music and they live this kind of way and sleeping around with all these people, but... You know, at least they give out turkeys during Thanksgiving. You know, at least they buy kids gifts or pay off layaway at some store. That's actually selfish because they're doing it to receive glory from men and not from God. But for Christians, we serve others to the glory of God. We are selfless people, not selfish people and that's what Paul talks about here in the opening verses of uh, Philippians 2 and that's what we see here in this passage with these people coming from all these towns 15 20 miles away and again they didn't have cars and interstates <laughs> okay they walked they traversed terrain we don't know what time of the year it was but I know in the winter it gets very cold over there at night because it's out in the desert, pretty much. And uh, during the summer, it gets very hot. But they traverse 15 to 20 miles away. Just imagine walking to downtown Anniston from center, which is about 20 miles from here. 
or from Heflin, which is only about 12 miles that way. Just imagine uh, traversing terrain doing that. You know, you don't have a highway to walk on. Okay, those roads are made of rocks and sand and dirt, and they had sandals. They didn't have comfortable sketchers on that make you bounce when you when you walk. No, they had animals with them to, you know, uh, all of that. So that showed the, the magnitude of their selfish, selflessness. And then they're coming to do what? Build a wall. <laughs> you know? They're coming to work. They're traveling to work to build a wall. That is an ultimate example. For an ultimate example, not the ultimate example. That is an ultimate example, or a good example, rather, of unselfishness. And that should characterize all of us as believers. In his book, uh, The Message of Nehemiah, Raymond Brown says that uh, selfless Christians share equally in ventures which bring no personal benefit to them other than the privilege of doing it for the Lord. He continues, those who love Christ have been liberated from the curse of selfishness and find the greatest joy in doing something for others. I mean, man, that is, that is so good. As Christians, this is why loving yourself is, number one, is heresy. Because you can't love yourself enough. You will never love yourself enough. When you worship yourself, you're never going to be a good worshiper of yourself. I mean, we can't even worship God rightly. <laughs> what makes us think we're going to worship ourselves even better? We cannot. We don't even love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and, and, and with all of our strength. How are we going to love ourselves that way? We can't. It's, it's impossible. Those who say love yourself, they can't love themselves enough. You would never be able to love yourself enough. enough. Why? Because we're not meant to love ourselves. We are meant to love and serve others. Jesus said what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Not love you. Like that big song that was popular in the 80s. You know, we played it in my high school band. It was a very popular song, but it wasn't until later on that I realized how anti-biblical that song was. <laughs> the Greatest Love of All, song by Whitney Houston. You know, learning to love yourself is, I can't try to sing like her, so I'm not. You know, in the chorus, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. That was such a beautiful song, but it is so wrong. It was, it's, it's so wrong. Learning to love yourself is not the greatest love of all. The greatest love of all happened on the cross. When Christ paid for our sin, when he paid our sin debt. That's the greatest love of all. There's no other love that can surpass that. You can't love yourself enough. And that love surpassed what Christ did for us on the cross. That's why loving yourself is foolish. That's why selfishness is foolishness. And as Raymond Brown reminds us, again, those who love Christ have been liberated from the curse 
of selfishness. And we find the greatest joy in doing something for us. I don't know how you all are. I'm sure most of us, when you do something for somebody else, it brings great joy. It does. Especially you're doing it in the name of the Lord. You're doing it because you love the Lord. And you're motivated by that love for God. You do it because it is a privilege to do it for the Lord. No, I enjoy doing this because I love the Lord. That is such a great testimony to people when we when we help them and they say thank you and we say you're welcome. I do this because I love the Lord. I'm not doing this for myself. When we serve others, that brings us great gospel joy. Because our Savior, he serves us. Do you all know that? Christ serves us as our high priest, just as the high priest served God's people. He serves us by doing what? Praying for us, interceding for us, acting on our behalf as our advocate. He is God the servant. He, he serves us day and night by pleading our righteousness. Christ is the greatest servant. Remember, again, the Son of Man did not come to what? Be served, but to what? But to serve. He is the one who unlatched the sandals on his disciples' feet and knelt and washed their feet. He took the form of a slave when he did that. The Son of Man was the greatest servant. He told his disciples when they were sitting around arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. He said, let the greatest among you be your what? Servant. He didn't say let the greatest among you be the highest, be at the top of the totem pole, to be at the top of the leadership ladder. No, he says let the highest, let the greatest rather, or the highest you can say, let the greatest among you be your servant. That is how unselfishness looks. And when we're doing the Lord's work, that is what we must have in mind. That must be our motivation when we're serving each other in the church, when we're serving the church. When we're giving to the church, we're giving to the Lord. We're doing it because it is pleasing to God and it is our pleasure. It's not drudgery. It's not painstaking. No, it is a joy. And that is what God works in every believer. Amen. The next principle, coming down a few notches, <laughs> the good work of the Lord is characterized by the builder's disappointment. Because we don't want to romanticize this story. I don't want to romanticize it. It wasn't all peaches and cream, or in my case, cookies and cream. Who likes cookies and cream ice cream? Yes. We had some good cookies and cream ice cream down at Boondocks Friday night in, uh, in Widawi after our meal. It was homemade down there. Cookies and cream is one of my favorites, especially our blue, blue bells. Amen. Glory to the Lord for blessing them to be able to make that good ice cream. Amen. <laughs> anyway, we don't want to romanticize this story. It wasn't all peaches and cream. It does get real in this passage because not everyone was on board with the rebuilding. You look at verse 5, you see this. There was a group of people who did not help with the rebuilding because Nehemiah said of the nobles of Tekoa, he said, 
uh, they would not put their shoulders to the work. They would not. The ESV says they would not stoop to serve their Lord. That phrase suggested it was pride rather than laziness which kept them from the work. And make no mistake about it, it is pride that keeps people from working in the Lord's church and doing the Lord's work. It's pride. It is pride that uh, keeps people from giving. It's pride that keeps people from serving. It's pride that keeps people from doing anything in the Lord's church. Raymond Brown said it this way. He says, pride is a cruel enemy. It inflates our self-importance and makes holiness impossible. He continues, it, pride, views humility as a failing rather than a virtue. It deflects our steps from the way of the cross. It refuses to see Christ as the noblest example. And it also forgets that he poured water into a basin and washed the feet of the other disciples. It was Christ who said in John 13 and 15, I have sent you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Pride hates humility. Those who are prideful see humility as foolish. How can you be so humble? And like Raymond Brown said, it, it, it takes us away from the cross. It refuses to see Christ. Christ wasn't full of pride. Christ was full of humility. But these people of Tekoa would not stoop. They would not humble themselves to serve their Lord. So that suggests that they were prideful. Perhaps they may have resented Nehemiah's leadership. But no matter what it is, the point is, it is that they refuse to get to work. They refuse to put in the work, demonstrating pride. And sadly, we see this all too often in the local church. We find people who do not put their shoulders to the Lord's work. If you read Deborah's song in Judges 5, her song conveys the same note of people who were willing to offer themselves. But there were others who did not come to help the Lord's uh, people against the mighty. We see this in uh, Judges uh, the fifth chapter verses uh, 1 through 2 and then 15 through 18. And then verse 23. It says here in Judges 5 and 1. This is uh, Deborah's song. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang that day, saying, When the leaders uh, lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. But then verse 15, and the princes of Issachar were with Deborah as Issachar 
So was Barak sent into the valley under his command among the divisions of Reuben. There were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and why did Dan remain on ships? Asher continued at the seashore and stayed by its inlets. Zebulon is a people who jeopardized their lives to the point of death. Nephilim also on the heights of the battlefield. So he talked about some of the tribes who helped and some of the tribes who did not help. Because when they were going to battle against the nations, some of the tribes participated and others stayed put. And that was not a good encouragement to them because they were trying to go against the Canaanites to kick them out of the land that God had given them. But some of the tribes went into battle and some of the other ones did not. One tribe was described as staying in their ships. So we see what happens. We see what happens and it can be very uh, tragic. So this people right here in this passage, they decided not to put in the work. But this happens a lot in local church. There's the, uh, what they call the 80-20 principle. Um, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. 80% of the giving is done by 20% of the people. And that is true in a lot of contexts. Uh, we're very fortunate to not have that at our church, and not necessarily because we're small, because even in small churches, uh, you have only one or two people doing things, but we're very fortunate to not have it like that. Uh, but there are larger churches where, you know, you have a church of a 1,000 people and only about 200 give. And that is true in a lot of cases. And out of uh, those 1,000 people, you may have only 100 who are actually doing the work, who are actually putting forth work and and helping to, uh, you know, get things together at the church. You don't think it happens? <laughs> Go to some of these larger churches and you hear people talk about the work that they do and, and how tired they are <laughs> because they're having to do so much. You got all these other people that are coming and, you know, living off the coattails of the, of the church growing and they're just coming in and sitting in their pews or in their chairs and just sitting comfortable. And then when church is over, guess what? They get up and leave. They don't even, they don't even stop, stop to say, hey, they, they skedaddle, okay, check church off my list, and then go uh, to Sunday brunch or whatever, and then head home and go fishing or do something else without seeing is, is, is there something that's needed at the church? Is there something that I can do? Pastor, what can we do to help serve in the church? And a lot of those churches are plagued uh, by that because you have people who uh, don't want to do the work. So that's what we, we think about when we think about this principle of uh, these people. The disappointment in them not wanting to do it. But it still did not stop the work, as we shall see. Next, the work of the Lord is characterized by the builder's commitment. So we go from disappointment to commitment. So in contrast to these unresponsive people, there are many men and women who gave themselves in great devotion and sacrifice to this rebuilding. 
they were committed to rebuilding because they were committed to their God. Contrast that with the Tekoites. They were not stooped to serve their Lord, but guess what? All the others did. They served their God. They were committed to their God. And I'll tell you this. Commitment to God always flows out in our commitment to his church. And that commitment begins when God puts that work into our heart upon salvation. Paul talks about this in Colossians, one of my favorite verses in scripture, Colossians 1 and 19. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the coming of Christ. God completes his work that he does in us. He doesn't just start it. He completes it. He sees it to completion. He perseveres us. Our commitment to God will flow out in our commitment to his church. I'm sure all of us know people who probably were going to church at one time and then stopped. I got family members like that, close family members. Going to church is like their kryptonite. Oh, no, no, they make every excuse in the world. It's because they're not committed to God. Because you start with God first. If your heart is not bent toward God, if your heart is not God, if God is not in your heart, then guess what? You can muster up all the willpower you want. It's just not going to happen. People who start going to church, most of them were probably uh, apostates from the beginning. They were false converts. But even those who start going for a season, that desire never leaves. They never leave. They may, they may struggle in that desire, but they pray, they fight, and they still what? They still go. They still go. The commitment has to be to who first? God. If you're going to be committed to God, you're going to be committed to his church. Okay? Because the church is his church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. This is Christ's church. If we're committed to Christ, we're going to be committed to what? His church. Because it's his. He purchased it with his blood. It takes commitment to God to do God's work. If I'm committed to God, it's going to show in my work. If you're committed to God, guess what? It's going to show. Many people try to put the cart before the horse, as they say. You can't be committed to the church first. You have to be committed to God first. Because if you have people, guess what? They'll start back coming to church. Okay, I'm going to go to church, Pastor. I'm, I'm tired of you talking about it. I'm tired of you asking me when I'm coming. It's like they're coming for me. No, you don't have to stand before my judgment seat. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you're here. Praise the Lord. But you're not ultimately accountable to me. Because I've seen it happen throughout my 30 years as a believer. By God's grace, he's persevered me. And it's only by his grace. Not because of anything I've done. But I've seen it throughout my walk with the Lord that you see people, they 
they they have it backwards. They're not committed to God, but they try to be committed to the things of God. But you can't if you're not God's. It has to be spiritually worked in you. He who begun a good work in you, God begins that work. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is him, God, who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is because of what God walks, works in us. Just as Paul said in Ephesians 2 and 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ for what? Good works. How does that work in us? You have to go back a few verses that we are saved by grace through faith. And as God saves us, guess what? We become his workmanship, his work of art. He saves us. He recreates us. He regenerates us. And because he does that, guess what? We're now his workmanship. So Paul says this, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. This is a uh, 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 Philippians, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, verse 8. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? Grace by faith. Salvation, rather, by grace through faith. That's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For, for means because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is one of those good works? Doing work for the Lord. Doing work in the Lord's church. God prepared us beforehand. That when he saved us, guess what? We were going to do good works. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we're saved. We're not Catholics. We're not saved by works. <laughs> no, we're saved to do good works. And when you're thinking about this, this commitment that these people had, they did it because they were committed to their God. Throughout her history, the church has been enriched by the ministry of millions of Christians who go unnoticed. And their only incentive is to honor God. That's the only incentive. J.C. Ryle said their service may not have given them a front row seat or a spot in the pulpit, but their committed work will be noticed by the Lord when he says to them, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, that is our goal. That is the goal of our commitment. So that God, when we stand before him, Christians, we have to always remind ourselves, our sins won't be judged, but our works will be. Okay? Some works will be wood, hay, and stubble. They will burn up, but we will be saved as Paul said, I think that's in 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. Our works will be judged, not our sins. Why? Because we're in Christ. God didn't see our sins. We were clothed with Christ's righteousness. But our works will be judged. What are we doing for the Lord? As my old folks used to say, uh, what you do for the Lord will last. So we want God to say to us, what well done, good and faithful servant that is what every believer should want to hear 
not the other servants who wasted what they were given, who were not good stewards over what they were given. And he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Last principle, the good work of the Lord is characterized by the builder's reward. Reward. The greatest reward of this group was working together through discouragements and disappointments in order to leave something behind that will outlive their days. They were leaving a spiritual legacy. They were rebuilding the holy city of God, that city on the hill. If you think about this, in time, these workers are going to die. But their work will what? It will remain. We think about spiritual legacies. The reward that we all have as believers. Well, let me finish this right quick. I had a few questions I put down here. Do you see your work for the Lord in this reality as it surpassing you? Do you see your work in the Lord as something that will outlive you? We should endeavor to do things for God's glory and for the edification of his church. Work that is going to last. Work that is going to surpass us or go on before us. Raymond Brown said again in his commentary, it is a magnificent thing when a Christian believer can leave something behind in this world which testifies to God's goodness. Are we going to leave something that testifies to God's goodness? Revelation 14 and 13 says, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. This work that they're doing on, the, on this wall, those people uh, who helped build it, they're going to inevitably die one day. But their work is going to follow them. Why? Because they're going to see that built wall. People after them are going to see it. Their, their children and their children's children are going to see that wall and remember, my great-grandparents built that wall. My great-grandparents built that temple where God's people can worship him. What a great legacy for them to leave. Uh, leave that is our ultimate reward is to build a spiritual legacy I want to leave a spiritual legacy for my children and for my wife if I precede her for her for me if she precedes me I want to leave a spiritual legacy for them and I'm endeavoring to do that that's what matters most you know one of our most beloved cultural icons died last week Miss Betty White, pretty much everybody knows who Betty White is, right? She, she was 99 years old. She was a couple weeks short of her 100th birthday. Do you know one day Betty White is going to be forgotten? A lot of people didn't even know that she was still alive, to <laughs> be honest with you. But one day she's going to be forgotten. She's not leaving a, you know, a legacy of laughter only lasts for so long. You know, the Golden Girl's not going to always be on TV. That's not a lasting legacy, a legacy of uh, laughter or 
making people feel good. I mean, that's very fleeting. Just read uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Solomon will tell you that, that all of it is vanity. Serving the Lord is what matters. That's going to count for eternity. Has someone's soul been saved because of you? Has someone considered their sins and confessed Christ because of us? That's what's going to matter for eternity. That's what's going to ultimately matter. That's going to be the well done, good and faithful servant. Not the fact that you made people laugh. Or that you had a great sense of humor, which are not bad things. But that's not going to count for what? Eternity. It was because of this person that now I'm in the Lord. And I have a different destination when I die. When we work for the Lord and serve and encourage other believers. Think about the kind of legacy uh, old saints can leave behind. Me and the guys were talking one day about some of the old preachers that we like to read, like Charles Spurgeon and J.C. Ryle and uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All these are uh, uh, men, uh, uh, all the Puritans, Thomas Watson and, and uh, Thomas Boston, all the other Puritans, how we still read their works. These men have been dead for hundreds of years, but yet their spiritual legacy has had a great impact on us as, as men. I'm reading a book now called Old Paths about J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle lived in the 19th century. I'm still I'm, I'm, I'm reading through that book now. I'm, I'm like highlighting every paragraph, you know, because it's just it's just so so rich. But that's the kind of legacy you want to to leave. And that's what these builders were doing. They were working for that reward. Amen. And that's what we ought to work for. Amen. In closing here, our gospel implications and applications. The first thing to always remember when you think about this passage in our life as believers is to prioritize the kingdom of God. Again, we look at Matthew 6 and 33. It's not just a bumper sticker, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's not just a bumper sticker or a T-shirt or a slogan. No, it's not just a life verse. We ought to prioritize the kingdom of God. Things that promote, things that exalt. Things that glorify God and his kingdom. Pursue humility. Don't pursue selfishness. Serve others. Be humble. Willingly serve others. Don't seek to be served, but seek to be a servant. Serve others. Three, be used by God. God, you are useful to God no matter what skill set you have. All these people, uh, again, we're building this wall. Everyone wasn't a builder. All of them put their hands to the work. They did what they could do to help accomplish this project in record time, as we're going to see. Accomplish God's purposes, rather God's goals, through teamwork, working together, <laughs> one anothering, praying for one another, encouraging one another, serving one another again. And then embrace gospel partnerships, work alongside other like-minded people, whether it's on your job or or in your friend group, partner with other gospel-minded people. 
That is such a great blessing. Meet other gospel-minded people. It is such a blessing when you meet other saints, other Christians. Had one sitting in my office the other day and uh, ended up keeping him in there longer than, than I should have. But I was just like, man, another brother in Christ. You know, we took care of the business he was in there for. And then next thing you know, we just started talking about the Lord. It was just, it was, I was so encouraged. Like, man, another believer. Someone who, who I could talk to and not get in trouble by my job. I said, make sure we get that survey that you give me all tens, by the way. You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but, but he, was a, he was a fellow brother in Christ. And I was so encouraged by our talk. That's how we embrace, embrace rather, gospel partnerships. Amen. Thank you for your patience. Let us, let us pray. Father, thank you for your word and how your word speaks to us on how we are to be selfless, how we are to love, honor, and serve each other and not look out for our own interests. And Lord, ultimately, this points to our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we looked at in our message. He gave us the ultimate example of what it means to be a servant, to be a partner, to be a partner in ministry. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Christ. And Lord, we are partners with you. You save us. You call us to do your work in this world. We are your partners. We are doing your bidding. And the great thing, Lord, about this partnership is that you work in us and you work through us to accomplish your purposes in this world. Lord, may you use this message to encourage the faithful, encourage the saints to persevere in their work in the church, in the local church, their work in Christian ministry, their work on their jobs in the ministry there, because all of us have a ministry at our jobs or in our homes or in our schools. Lord, thank you. I pray that you use this message also to convict sinners and bring them to a saving faith in you. May you use your word mightily, Lord, to the saving of souls and to the edifying of your church. In Christ's name I pray, amen.